Morning. Happy Easter to you. I'm next in line to wish you a happy Easter. Hope it's a great, great day for you and your family. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free Church. And if you're a newcomer here, we extend a special welcome to you. Thank you for choosing to join us today. I'd love to personally meet you after the service if you'd like. And um, uh, we also just want to say thanks for, for joining us. If you're new here and you have any questions about the church, you can find out more at the information table, and we have a small gift there for you as well. But great to be here today for the Christian holiday above all other Christian holidays. I did some, some research here this past week related to Easter, some very, very important research on um, Americans' favorite Easter candies, very important scientific studies that I looked at related to that vitally important topic. Uh, did you know that Americans' uh, second favorite holiday for spending money on candy is Easter? It is. $3 billion this year we'll spend on Easter candy. Woo, that was with a B, $3 billion. Hey, um, what are your favorite Easter candies? Kids, you want to share with me? What are some of your favorites? Reese's, all right. Kit Kats. Reese's, what else? Peeps. She said peeps. Others? Skittles? Jelly beans? All right. We, we got a good participatory crowd today, right on. Okay, so uh, in 2021, my research indicates that the number five most popular American Easter candy is Peeps. What? These <laughs> Are there any kids here who like Peeps? Not adults. Any kids here who likes Peeps? Okay, buddy. Can you catch this? Come, come, in, the, come in the aisle. I don't want to hit someone else. Ah, uh, get it. Oh, there you go. Okay. Number four most popular Easter candy today is jelly beans. Who likes jelly beans? Okay, big guy, come on, stand up. Come catch, you got it. All right. Nice catch, nice catch. He's a baseball player. Number three most popular Easter candy this year is the Russell Stover chocolate bunny. Mmm. See a whole bunch. I saw your hand first. I saw your hand first. Come on over here. All right, good. All right, nice catch. Number two most popular is the Cadbury egg. 21% of Americans say this is their number one favorite Easter egg. We need to go over to this side over here. Okay, buddy. The awesome fedora. You ready? Okay. Watch your head. I'm not the best tosser. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you okay, pal? I apologize. Am I going to get sued? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. Which leaves the number one. What's the number one? Ah, that's mine. It is for me. It's for me. <laughs> One more really is for me. I've been talking all morning, so sorry. You guys came for the leftovers here at 11. Hopefully I have something left for you. Well, the real question is, how in the world did we get from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to jelly beans. I'm not sure how we got there, but it's a nice bonus. 
and uh, we're grateful for this day. So glad you are here to celebrate the real reason for Easter, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know you've heard this story dozens of times before. What a story it is. Jesus Christ lived a life of perfection. He was mercy and grace, intelligence and strength, compassion and holiness. He was all of those on display all the time. And yet his life was tragically cut short by the combined efforts of the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman legal authorities as they conspired together. Friends, here's the facts about that first Easter. In around A.D. 30, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by Pontius Pilate, who was governor over the region of Judea. He died and he was buried on what was Good Friday. He was buried by these Roman soldiers. He was killed by these Roman soldiers, but he was buried by one named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling class over the Jews, and he was a wealthy man who had a well-known tomb, and he gave it for Jesus to be buried there. The Romans, of course, killed Jesus on that cross, and then they were entrusted with guarding the tomb. I'll tell you this, the Romans knew how to kill people, okay? Jesus was not left alive on that cross, I can assure you of that. The Romans knew how to kill people. They knew how to secure a tomb. And they certainly knew how to guard the tomb, given the fact that this was one who said he was going to die and rise again. And yet, contrary to any expectation, on Sunday morning, Jesus rose physically from that tomb. That resurrection was witnessed by hundreds of people, by Jews and Gentiles, by believers and skeptics. And the resurrection turned over their lives. And still to this day, his bones have never been found. The grave remains empty, and history has turned on the events of that first Passion Weekend. Jesus, my friends, he, he said that he would die to save us from the penalty of sin and to justify our free belief in him, and then he did it. This is the story of forgiveness. This is the story that leads us to boldness. This is the story that enables us to endure whatever pain we might be experiencing today. I know you've heard this story many, many times, but I'd like to suggest to you two simple ideas out of the different narratives that we just read, first fought from the resurrection and then fought from the story of the prodigal son, two simple ideas that perhaps we would take home with us as we reflect upon the Easter message. The first one is this, as Jesus rose physically, so his intention is we would rise spiritually. As Jesus conquered the grave physically, so he intends for us to rise up spiritually from whatever it is that might be getting us down today, whatever it is that leaves us in a morose condition today, whatever it is that makes us feel like there is no hope today. He desires that we would be able to rise up spiritually through his grace, his mercy, and his power which is in us who believe. Here's what he says in John chapter 11, speaking of his own resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's not saying you won't die physically. The death rate is still one-to-one, last time I checked. You will die physically. What he's saying is you need not ever die spiritually. And what he's saying is we are invited to a new resurrected life spiritually even today, no matter what we've come in with this morning. We're invited into this message. We're invited into the story of Good Friday to Easter in which we would confess the ways that we have fallen short of God's standards and receive his forgiveness over our lives. We're invited into that story, and that's where it begins. And the basic story of Good Friday and Easter helps us to rise up through whatever pain we might experience right now. I know many of us in this room have endured extraordinary grief in this past year. And I relate to that as well. This past year, the past several years have been times of extraordinary grief for many of us. But I believe because I have experienced and I've seen it far from so many and because I see in the promises of Scripture that Jesus intends to rise us out of that grief, out of the ashes can indeed spring life. And out of the pain that we are going through, whatever it might be, God is not done with us in the midst of our pain. He desires to redeem our sorrow. He will rise us spiritually far from the grief that we experience as we trust in him. I don't know about you, but I just trust anyone who says they're going to live a perfect life, they're going to die die for my sins, they're going to conquer the grave, and they actually do it. Anyone who does that, they actually conquer the grave, I say, I'm going with you. I trust that man, okay? We are invited to trust our days and our eternity to him. As he rose physically, so he would rise us spiritually. And I know there's many in this room here today that already believe that message. But really what I wanna talk to you about today is is something else that's related to that message, but it's something that we don't talk about enough. And it's about how the resurrection might free us from the magnitude of a terrible emotion that has swept across our land over the last number of years. And the emotion that I'm talking about is shame. The Bible says that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. What does that mean? Like, how did Jesus endure shame? He was the exalted and and high and lofty one. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. How did he endure shame? Well, Jesus was betrayed by one of his apprentices for 30 pieces of silver. You probably remember how the story went down. And then at his hour of greatest need, after being betrayed by one of those apprentices, most of the other ones abandoned him. His own flesh flesh and blood brothers doubted him, doubted the things that He said, didn't believe in him, really wanted nothing to do with him. He's arrested. He's tried. The crowds begin to mock him. He carries a cross up to a hillside, and up on that hillside, the soldiers strip him naked. And then they pound his wrists and his feet into a cross. We don't portray it that way in our artwork, in our sculptures of the crucifixion, but Romans would strip the criminals who were crucified naked. And there's Jesus on the cross, 
crucified naked, as his mother looks on, as his best friend looks on, as the crowds jeer him, and as the soldiers are gambling for his tunic that they just stripped him of. And on that cross, suffering like that, Jesus would die by suffocation. Again, the Bible says that Jesus swallowed up all of that shame for this reason. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he did that? What was the joy? The joy was you. Jesus endured shame for the joy of raising us up out of shame. Part of the reason that Jesus endured the shame and the pain of the cross is that shame would not have the final word in our lives. Shame has probably got to be, I would say, the most powerful negative emotion that humans experience. And we've all experienced it from time to time, and when you go through it, the intensity of humiliation or judgment or contempt fought from someone else, the experience of shame, it has a way of weakening you, does it not? It has a way of making you feel like your place is not safe, like maybe there is no place for you. That's what shame does. It weakens us at the knees, and it makes us wonder if we can be safe anywhere. Now, shame has always been around, and cancel culture is not new, okay? Some people would like you to believe that it's a brand new thing. It's not a new thing. It's been around for centuries. But shame has taken on a new edge in the past several years, has it not? I got to tell you, the thing that most saddens me as I look at our nation over the past few years is the way shame has been used as a weapon to demonize people, to marginalize people, and then to polarize people. Shame has been weaponized in our culture such that we say, us and them, my people and not my people. The actor, the politician, or the athlete today who misstates a single word is in danger of being canceled. If a Christian brother in our day calls out another brother for his sinful behavior, which is just kind of a normal part of the discipleship process that we would call each other to account and we would try to build each other up over time. Today, if you do that, you're at risk of being canceled by that Christian brother. Parents today are sometimes shaming their adult kids for seeing things differently than their family is supposed to see things. And oftentimes, kids today are shaming their adult parents for failure to update their beliefs each year or for mistakes that they perhaps made decades ago. Are you seeing this? People are being shamed left and right for the most arbitrary reasons. People are shamed today for the state that they've come from. Oh, you came from North Dakota? Oh boy, those North Dakotans. You, you came from California? Oh, boy, those California... Right? You've heard this, right? People are shamed over these kinds of things. Don't even get me started on a whole bunch of others. 
but it's been used as a weapon to divide us and to cancel one person from another, and the result is this. It's the devastation of friendships being severed and families being divided. And it leaves us angry and it leaves us fearful and even asking the question, will I be next? I want to tell you that Jesus explains a far different story about how the Father treats sinners and tax collectors and conservatives and liberals and people who sin just like you do and people who sin a different way than you do. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. And we just heard it. The prodigal son and the story of the lovesick father helps us imagine the character of God. You gotta understand, this boy effectively wished his dad dead. He said, give me my share of the inheritance, but before you're gone, dad, I want it right now. And I wanna go off and live just the way I want to live. And so the father, he wipes away the tears from his eyes. And he sucks off his pride. And he gives his son that inheritance. The son takes it and he leaves town. And as he leaves town, he goes off into wild living where he buys the nicest cars and stays at the finest hotels. And he finds the most beautiful prostitutes. And he lives like this for a while and eventually he turns to whiskey. And eventually after he's been doing that, night after night after night, all that wild living results in this, his bank account is empty. Eventually the bank has been broken and so he finds a gig as a hired servant cleaning the stalls for pigs, wishing to eat the same slop. Again, the irony of the story is incredible. Here's a Jewish boy caring for these pigs, wishing to eat the same slop that he's feeding to the pigs. And as he's doing so, he comes to his senses and he begins talking to himself and he says, while I will never be welcomed back into my father's house as a son, I know the hired hands in my father's house live a whole lot better than I'm currently living. Maybe I can go there and hire myself out to him. We pick up the story there in verse 20. So he got up. Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, he interrupts his son, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What a story. In my office, I have a framed portrait of this image from Rembrandt's painting, The Parable of the Prodigal Son. This is my all-time favorite piece of artwork. I do not have the original, okay? I have this framed portrait in my office and I look at it regularly to remember again what is the character of God. 
This visualizes for us the character of God for wayward, prodigal sons and daughters who have lost their way at some time. And the center of the picture is not the son. The son is in the foreground, but the center of the picture is the father. And do you notice the father's hands? These huge, massive hands over the back of the son's shoulders pulling the son close to the father's chest. And there's the son with these two sandals. One of them is broken. One of them has fallen off. And the father says, put new sandals on his feet. Get a ring and put it on his finger. All he's wearing is his undergarments. Get a robe and put that robe on him because my son was lost and now he is found. You see, the point of the parable is this. In the presence of the father, it's okay to not be okay. You hear that? In the presence of the Father, my friends, it's okay to not be okay. That's the idea that Jesus is trying to convey to us about our Father in heaven through this parable. Jesus scorns your shame and he embraces you right in the middle of your pain. You understand that Jesus welcomed these kinds of people, like the prodigal son. In fact, if you want to go back to the very beginning of Luke chapter 15 and read the context of this parable, the reason Jesus even spoke this parable is because the religious uppity-ups called Pharisees were looking down their nose at Jesus and looking down their nose at people like the prodigal, looking down their nose at quote-unquote sinners. So they determined these people are not our kind of people, we're going to look down at them, and so Jesus says, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you about the love of the Father because you obviously have missed it. This is the nature of my father. He welcomes those who are on the margins. He goes out of his way to care for those that you might call sinners. He wants to forgive the guilty. He wants to free the shameful. In one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, it says, while the prodigal son was a far way off, the father saw him. What's he doing? He's looking through the window hoping, praying that his son would come home. While he's a far way off, his father saw him. He ran toward his son. He embraced him, and he kissed him. It's astonishing. Nobody does that. There's no father in any culture on earth that does that. When someone says to the dad, I wish you were dead. Now give me your inheritance early. Give me my inheritance my inheritance early. There's nobody who does that. And especially so in a Middle Eastern culture, okay, our culture really emphasizes more guilt historically, Western culture does. Right now it's really emphasizing shame. But Middle Eastern cultures like Jesus was in really are honor-shame cultures. And you would never find a Middle Eastern patriarch who would lower himself to such a level that he picks up his robe and then he sprints toward his son who shamed him and he throws his arms around him in the middle of his son's speech, in the middle of his son's apology. He says, son, forget about it. You're home. I love you. It's the father taking on the son's shame to bring the son into the father's joy. So much more could be said about all of this and we're going to dive into this topic a bit more over these next weeks. Again, it's canceled, how shame has a way of ruining us. We're going to look at a number of lies that we tend to believe 
that add to this experience of shame that many of us experience right now. And then we're going to look at a number of truths that would set us free from those lies. And no matter where you are, no matter your background, no matter what you believe right now, I promise you this, God does not want you to live in a place of shame. That's not God's will for you. To live in a place of contempt or judgment or shame, what God desires is that we would be freed through the power of the resurrection. What God desires is that we would find safe and vulnerable communities where we could develop new narratives about what God thinks as he looks at us, what other people would think as they look at us, how we could have safe community, we could rise out of the ashes of shame. Suffice it to say, the prodigal son himself was not the problem, was he? He wasn't the problem. His sin was the problem. And so for us, you are not the problem. I am not the problem. My sin is the problem. Your sin can be the problem. What you are is a masterpiece created in the image and likeness of God. Like a Rembrandt painting, that's what you are. But you happen to miss the mark of God's holy standard on occasion and that kind of mars the masterpiece, does it not? And so God wants to restore that masterpiece into an even greater glory than it was in the first place. You are not the problem. Your sin gets in the way, just like mine. And so God wants to come to us, and he would endure our shame for the joy of rising us out of that shame and bringing us into the Father's joy. Now, let me close with this story. Raise your hand with me if you know the name Rick Warren. Anyone in here? Okay, about half of us in this room know the name Rick Warren, and that's because he's a very well-known pastor and author who wrote a book probably 20 years ago that sold a few copies. About 35 million of them. He wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Life, and he's been one of the most faithful pastors. He's led a church from nothing to about 30,000 people, a tremendous man of God, and uh, he has a, a worldwide influence in his ministry. He's just about to retire from his ministry, but he's lived and, and led in a very faithful way across these, I think, 47 years as a pastor. But a number of years ago, he went through the greatest tragedy that any parent could ever go through. He and his wife, Kay, had a wonderful son by the name of Matthew. And Matthew uh, struggled for a long time with mental illness. And they went back and forth with different counselors and psychiatrists and different medications. And he fell deeper into depression and then he got back out of it and he fell back into it again and he took his life. And for public display, before an audience of millions, Rick Warren had to, pra- had to process that. Talk about being under a magnifying glass that everybody knows your life, everybody's read your book, about a purpose-driven life, and all of a sudden your son takes his life, how do you deal with that? Well, a number of years after the tragedy, Rick shared this reflection, which I wrote down and I've held on to over the years during my times of grief. He said this, I've oftentimes been asked, how have you made it through Matthew's death? How have you kept going in your pain? And I've oftentimes replied to people, the answer is Easter. Easter. 
My only answer is Easter. And you see, in Good Friday and Easter, you have these three days that we all experience at different times in our lives. Friday is like the pain and the agony and the shame and the severe disappointment of life. And Saturday is like this despondency and this doubt and disappointed expectations. And how did it go down this way? I thought it would be different than this. And all of us go through Friday and Saturday. It doesn't matter who you meet. Know this, people you meet are going through Friday or Saturday right now. And all of us are looking forward to Sunday, which would be the day of triumph and victory and joy. And some of us are in Sunday right now, and thanks be to God if you are, but others in this room are going through Friday or Saturday right now. I quote Rick Warren now. He explained, here is the fact of life. You are going to face these three days over and over in your lifetime. And when you do, you will find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, where do I go in my days of pain? Number two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And number three, how do I get to days of joy and victory? And he said, my answer, the only answer I have found, is resurrection. It's the hope of resurrection, that because he lives, so also we may really live. Because he lives, the ashes that we experience are not our final word. This is the best answer the world has ever been given to our experience of pain and shame and deep disappointment. The answer was, the answer still is, the answer always shall be, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Father, would you please help us to live in that? Please help us to live in the hope of newness of life as many of us are living in Friday right now. I look over this room today and think of those watching online and I know that there are many who are experiencing deep pain right now. I know there are many others who feel shamed. They feel like there's no place in the world where they are safe. They go to class and they get bullied. There's others who don't necessarily feel safe with their family. There's something for all of us, Lord, and we give thanks for this story of the prodigal son that the father runs to us in those conditions. And the father refuses to be done with us. And the father would embrace us when we're a mess. And we can learn from that story that in your presence, it's okay to not be okay. And so I ask for my friends in this room today, for those who are watching online, that you would impress upon them this truth, that they can come as they are to the Father's love. And while the Father may not leave us just where we are, the Father will want us to keep growing from where we are. He will wrap his loving arms around you. He will embrace you. He would come to you. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to resurrect us. Please continue to do so. Give us spiritual and emotional life. Give us hope to overcome the days of despair. Through Christ our Lord we ask.
Amen.